As you're finding your places and getting situated, if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Philemon, I would ask, uh, not out of a pity party or anything, but just pray for my voice. It's strange. I felt really strong singing the first two songs and got up for the third song and I sounded, I was telling him I sound like an eight V8 on two cylinders, just going to... And uh, that's not real good when you're supposed to be uh, speaking and sharing orally, verbally. But God has his plan and his timing, and I trust him in that. So I am nothing, whether my voice would sound better or not. We pray that God will work through his word. As we look at the book of Philemon, from what, Paul, from what Tom read earlier, the first words from Paul's pen indicate this letter is written by him, Paul, while he is imprisoned in Rome. The timing was some point around A.D. 60 to 62 during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. This is Paul's shortest New Testament letter. And for those who like details, it consists of 335 words in the original Greek. And as some of you experienced earlier this morning, Philemon can be a bit difficult to locate. In fact, when my wife Sherry and I served in inner city Los Angeles, a very talented young man by the name of Virgil wrote a song to help people familiarize themselves with the books of the Bible. And the title and the first line went, and I'm not going to sing it, I'll just read it. Oh, where, oh, where did Philemon go? He's in here somewhere, don't you know? And so he would give the books of the Bible and we would come to Philemon. And, and it helped you understand the order, but it was clever. With cell phone Bible apps, though, that's not a big problem anymore. But I still encourage you, please keep a hard copy of the scriptures nearby. And use it often, even if it is a challenge to find Philemon. We will be in Philemon for the next at least three weeks, Lord willing. And I hope you will refer to it often during the week so that you can begin to sense the intimate nature and challenge of the words that are written here. It is a very amazing book of the New Testament. And while it is brief, it is considered to be the most personal letter in all the New Testament. There are no lists of instructions, no lists of offenses or commands. Paul does not explain or detail deep theological truths. In fact, this letter focuses on one serious issue. Paul approaches it persuasively, but with courtesy, respect, and love. As we read Philemon, I believe you will find it a very special revelation of Paul's huge heart of love for dear friends from extreme backgrounds. We often see Paul and some people will say, well, I love Jesus, but Paul is, is tough. And it, it comes across hard. This is a very beautiful exposure of the heart of Paul, a real friend of friend. And he has some very important things to say here. Paul's letter to the Colossians, another book in the New Testament, was actually written around the same time as he wrote Philemon. Colossians was delivered together with the letter to Philemon. Philemon, who is a citizen or resident of Colossae, 
and also a member of that Colossian church. So there's a connection between Colossians and Philemon. As recorded in Colossians chapter 4 verses 7 through 9, we find out that these letters were actually hand-delivered by Tychicus and Onesimus. I'm going to read there verse 7. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Now this Onesimus is a major factor in the letter to Philemon. But he doesn't come into the picture actually until next week when we get into verse 10. We're not even really going to discuss him much. But I will give a little background about him in just a moment. Like any great moment in history, there are several important events that transpired to arrive at the account that we have before us. To omit the rich background of this story would rob us of the colorful and amazing providence of God. We, we heard from Christine how God worked in that amazing way with timing. And I can tell you stories like that. It's just so exciting when you feel God is moving you and moving others and you're watching Him do this. I want you now to listen to how God brings each person, place, an event into a beautifully composed symphony that rises to a climactic moment of challenge and opportunity for Paul, Philemus, Philemon, Onesimus, and Christ's bride, the church. Let's look at this amazing providence. During the early first century, from about AD 20 to 30, a very aggressive and zealous young Pharisee rises to prominence among the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. His name is Saul, and his primary mentor is Gamaliel. Saul hated anything and anyone that threatened the Jewish religious system, which was based on earning favor with God by obeying the law and keeping Jewish traditions. Consequently, Saul was insatiably driven to persecute a new movement of people following a man named Jesus. These fools believe Jesus is God. And by trusting and following Him, they become God's children and inherit eternal life. However, Saul's fellow Pharisees before him, along with the despised Roman military, had been able to eliminate Jesus through public crucifixion. An estimated four to seven years after that execution of Jesus... During one of Saul's campaigns to arrest, chain, and imprison more Jesus followers, the very Jesus whose name he hated and whom he was convinced was a dead heretic encountered him on the road to Damascus. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Beginning at verse 3, Acts 9 verse 3. As he, Saul, journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. The story of Saul. Now, we move ahead 10 years. More than 10 years later, in a bustling port city called Ephesus, Saul is now known as Paul. And he is preaching and teaching about the risen Jesus Christ. And there he remained and taught for about two and a half years. At the same time, in a small town of Colossae, about 120 miles from Ephesus, let me show you that. If you can see that, we have Colossae right there in the middle by the yellow star and Ephesus 120 miles to the west right along the port of the Mediterranean Sea. And in this small city of Colossae, we find this man Philemon. And the Bible describes him as owning at least one home and at least one slave. His home was large enough for eventually the assembly of believers to have meet there and have their uh, worship there. And he likely had more than one slave, but we don't know about that. By any means, Philemon would have been considered a successful man in that society. It would appear then, at some time, during Paul's stay in nearby Ephesus, God brings Philemon into the life path of the former Christ-hating Pharisee. He hears Paul now preaching, Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. God gives Philemon ears to hear, a new heart of flesh, and Philemon repents from his sin and trusts in Jesus Christ. A very short time later, Paul leaves Ephesus, eventually returning to Jerusalem. There he is arrested at the Jewish temple. 
And through really a crazy, arduous journey of arrests, various legal and religious accusations, court proceedings at a number of different locations, along with a shipwreck and a venomous snake bite, Paul ends up in the great city of Rome as a prisoner. Meanwhile, back in the village of Colossae, Philemon's slave by the name of Onesimus runs away from the estate. And as he flees, it appears he may have stolen money or goods to take with him. Eventually, he too arrives in the vast metropolis of Rome. Rome is approximately 1,200 miles from Colossae if you go by land and sea to get there. If, as was quite possible, you had to go by foot, it was much longer as that yellow path takes them all around, winding up even to the north part of Italy and eventually back down to Rome. At any rate, it was a tremendous trek that Onesimus went through to get to Rome. As God continued to providentially lead the lives of these three men, Paul, Philemon, Onesimus, the Lord now brings Onesimus into the life path of Paul. The same Paul that God had used to save his owner Philemon years earlier. From Paul Onesimus now hears the glorious life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And God transforms his heart and he too is saved. As we now come to the timing of this letter, the situation looks like this. There is a saved former Christ-hater, now prisoner of Jesus Christ, named Paul. He has written a very personal and persuasive letter to a dear friend whom he had previously introduced to Christ about another dear friend he has recently led to Christ. Secondly, there is a saved, very loving and effective minister of Christ who is also a slave owner named Philemon who has received this letter. This man must now make a very weighty decision. <clears throat> and thirdly, there is a saved, completely transformed, and very useful co-worker to Paul's ministry in the church, who is also a criminally guilty runaway slave named Onesimus. The penalty of beating, imprisonment, and even possible execution hangs over this brother. What amazing transformation has taken place in each of them. By the miraculous grace of God, they are all now three brothers. And their older brother is Jesus Christ. Together one day, the scriptures say, they will all reign in eternity as heirs of God and as joint heirs of Christ, the three of them. <clears throat> but that is to come. And that is not the day of this letter. At this point in time, there is a huge hurdle of opportunity that stands before these three men and the Church of Christ. We now have the opportunity, the wonderful occasion, to study how did God lead them. Here's what is at stake. The glory of Christ. Will God be magnified in how this is handled? Secondly, the health and survival of the body of Christ. It is dependent completely upon how this is handled there in Colossae. Three, we have the welfare of Onesimus, a new brother in Christ, whose earthly future will be altered 
dramatically by what happens now. And we have the sanctification continued ministry of Philemon. He must carefully consider the counsel and request of his dear friend and his father in the faith as well as the welfare of his newborn brother and slave. You see the dilemma that this brings together? There are so many factors. And that's what makes this book fascinating. Some people will say it's about this or it's about that or try to bring it into perhaps social justice or, or to some sort of a cause for uh, racial harmony and things like that. This, there is no even apparent indication of racial issues here. There are role issues. But we're going to study that whole aspect next week. It really doesn't come up yet this morning. There are several themes that run through here very clearly. First of all, the transforming power of Christ. Formerly useless, Paul will call him, is now indeed useful. He has been transformed. Reconciliation. A slave has been reconciled to God. But so was a slave owner. As well as those men's father in the faith, Paul himself. Will these brothers... Onesimus and Philemon. Will they be reconciled to each other? How can this happen? What will Paul say? The theme of impartiality in the body of Christ. You have a slave owner and a slave who have become one in Jesus Christ. You have the command to forgive. <clears throat> and forgiveness perhaps is required from maybe both parties in this case. And one of the most beautiful things we're going to see here is in verse 17 and 18. You will see the portrayal of Christ's gospel love through Paul where he tells Philemon, If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Who does that sound like? Let's pray as we get ready to then unfold these first seven verses. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book that lies before us. There is so much involved here that is, is deep and powerful and rich and, and so, so intimate about relationship, love, forgiveness, reconciliation, who we are in you. Lord, our church needs this. Your church everywhere needs, needs to hear what you say through Philemon. So please speak clearly, no matter what my voice says. Speak clearly through your spirit through these words that you have penned through your Apostle Paul. In Jesus' name, amen. So that was a rather long introduction, so let's dig in here with the prisoner's greeting. Uh, who was the author? Verse 1 begins with Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. <clears throat> Paul. No other letter in the Bible begins with Paul introducing himself with this title of prisoner. Other letters were written from prison, but in none of them does Paul assume that title of prisoner. It is the Greek word desmios, and it is all about, and it comes from a root of shackles, bonds, and chains. As Paul writes this letter, he is literally held captive as a prisoner, most likely in Rome. Only a few years earlier, Paul's savior and predecessor in bonds, who might that be? Jesus Christ himself, told the Roman governor, Pilate, he said, you could have no power at all against me unless it has been given you from above. 
In the same way now Paul does not consider his freedom controlled by Roman guards, but by Jesus Christ, his true master. Paul was imprisoned in Rome because he was held captive by faith to Jesus Christ. He would never renounce the life-saving gospel of Jesus, even though it would eventually lead to his beheading. Who was his prison master? He says, Christ Jesus. Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, proclaimed throughout the Old Testament. The one the Jews had waited for for centuries, millennia. He has come. He has here the Christ, Jesus. We know that word. It means the Savior. It was a name prophesied by the angel of the Lord, meaning he will save his people from their sin. That is Paul's prison guard. Paul mentions Timothy also as a brother in Christ Jesus. And although Timothy is introduced at the beginning of this letter, he is not really a co-author. You see, from verse 4 to the end of the letter, Paul uses the word I rather than the plural we, showing that this letter has his personal hand stamp. This is Paul's letter. Perhaps Timothy is mentioned here because although he did not write, he likely knew Philemon. And also because as Paul ages and ministry continues to expand, he wants to place Timothy in a more visible role of leadership. This letter is written to a beloved co-worker and to friends. Verse 1 goes on, it says, To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Apphia, Archippus, and our fellow soldier, or Pharchippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Philemon, he is beloved. It's a word that Paul uses three times in this letter. It, it means, it's the Greek word agapetos. It's where we get the idea from agape, the love of God. It's defined in one study as this, the beloved, dear, but spoken only of Christians as united with God or united with each other in the bonds of holy love. He is a beloved fellow worker. Fellow here means in union, a strong deep bond and a worker, just like it means. It's one who toils. He's one who labors. Now in some of your versions, uh, it says brother and others says friend. Uh, neither of these words are actually in the original text. So it seems best that we would use what the ESV says here. It says Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Paul here is describing something very rare and resilient. It is a relationship that has grown out of serving God together on the battlefield of ministry. We know, we, and I've read this many times, I love that portion of Paul's letter in the Corinthians. We know Paul has faced innumerable threats to his life. Beatings, stonings, hunger, shipwreck, imprisonment, rejection, mocking, scourging, and on and on. Perhaps Philemon and some of these others had stood with Paul under such circumstances. This unique love for a co-labor is undeniable. And I, I want you to listen and think about this carefully. Is it something that perhaps you're missing out on? <clears throat> Brothers and sisters that I've had the privilege to serve God with, particularly in evangelism and missions, have a very special place in my heart. Why? Because we have been cursed at and we have been praised. 
We have been spit on and patted on the back. Told to get out of here and told to keep it up. Literally struck down and lifted up. We have prayed for the lost, for boldness, for each other's struggles and failures, for each other's families. We've apologized to each other. We've confessed sin. We've cried together. We've laughed together. We've been in the sweltering heat, the freezing cold, and the driving rain. We have even had the sprinkler system come up right underneath our evangelism tent one time. So sometimes the trials come from our own lack of wisdom. But through it all, we have had one unfailing strength and comfort that has really welded our hearts together. Our Messiah and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live for Him and we desire to praise Him and make Him known. That's the kind of fellow worker that Philemon was to Paul. The next person named as a recipient of the letter is Apphia. Now some say that she may have been Philemon's wife. However, as G.K. Beale writes, this is speculation. We just do not really know who she is. But we do know Apphia is definitely a believing sister in Christ to Philemon, to Paul, to Archippus, and to the rest of the believers in the church. Then we have Archippus. A few of the commentators list him as Philemon's son, but I was unable to find any solid support for that. But Colossians 4.17 gives this detail. It says, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Archippus must have had responsibility and effective ministry there in the Colossian church. And then it's written to the church in the house. Verse 2 ends by telling us that this letter is not only to a close brother in Christ and other dear individuals, but it is also to the church that meets in Philemon's home. Now, if it's so personal, would we ask this question, well, why should the whole church be in on such a personal situation? Is it for accountability? Is it to gain understanding or to pray or to receive instruction? Many commentators assert that the reason is to apply pressure on Philemon to acquiesce to Paul's upcoming request about Onesimus. It will appear in the next few verses. But as I've studied this letter, I don't see this kind of manipulation. Yes, Paul is persuasive. Paul is strategic. But as you will see in the next few verses, Paul not only loves Philemon as a close brother, but he also has a high degree of respect for his faith in God and his very effective ministry to brothers and sisters in the church. I believe Paul had full confidence in how Philemon would respond. So I offer two thoughts on why the church was included as recipients to this personal letter to Philemon. I certainly could be wrong, and I'm open to discussion about this afterward if you'd like. But let me start with this. In this letter, Paul writes so much as a friend and a brother that it displays a tremendous example of godly relationship that every church needs to see. We need to see this. We need to live like this. The church can learn from this and they can live this way with each other too. Secondly, by hearing Paul's persuasion to Philemon for a specific action, the church has opportunity to witness a real-life demonstration of two Christian brothers 
responding in obedience to the word of God out of love for Christ and each other. Having witnessed what Paul has written, they can see it played out in obedience by Philemon and Onesimus. And then the third thought is posed by G.K. Beale, and I think this has merit. He says, perhaps the church itself was fractured by the dilemma of the runaway slave and slave owner. And they needed to also hear Paul's reasoning and appeal. So those are three reasons why I think the church was included to receive this letter. Then in verse 3, Paul unveils the foundation that undergirds everything he's going to talk about. This is the substrate that holds it all up. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire premise of the Philemon letter rests on the truth of this statement. You see, the three main individuals concerned in this letter, Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus, have all found peace with God. That is a big thing. If you are trying to share the gospel, or if you are speaking with relatives or friends about who the Lord is, most people do not have peace with God or peace in this life. That peace has only come through the grace of God. And in all three of these lives, as well as the lives of Aphia, Archippus, and the believers in the church, the unmerited favor of God has brought them peace. In Romans chapter 5 we read, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace. The grace which brings faith and brings peace. Therefore we may rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, every word and sentence that, Philemon, or that Paul expresses in the remaining 22 verses of this letter are only true and they're only relevant for life because of the grace of God. Uh, if you try to share the gospel and there is no grace of God, you are totally irrelevant and have nothing to offer. I myself, if I skip that essential portion of what God has done in His grace, I've blown it completely. That is why Paul sets this as the foundation of where he's going to go. And then we come to the prisoner, Paul's regard for Philemon in these last four verses. Verse 4, he says, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. You see, it's been at least three years, probably more, since Paul has last seen his beloved co-worker Philemon. But you know something, Philemon has not been forgotten by Paul. Paul did many things well in ministry, but at the very forefront of it all, was that he prayed for people. He did not stop praying. Yes, he prayed praise and thanksgiving. Yes, he prayed in confession of sin to God. Yes, he cried out to his Savior in times of personal need, pain and difficulty. But this man unceasingly prayed for people. He prayed constantly for individuals as well as for whole churches. He prayed this way from the beginning of his ministry and I am quite certain that he prayed this way on the very last day when that Roman executioner removed his head from his body. That he was still praying by name for people. Although God ordained and circumstance, although the God ordained time and circumstance did not bring Paul and Philemon face to face again, Paul did not cease praying for him. And he says, how often? Always. It's a word that means evermore, every time, at all times. If you had served with Paul 
there was one thing you knew for sure. He was praying for you. Paul was praying for you. That raises the necessary question. Do we pray for others by name? In your family, in this assembly, outside of this. Do we pray for each other specifically? Husbands, let me ask you, do you pray every day and throughout the day for that woman that God has brought into your life that you're to lay your life down for? Do you pray for her constantly? Do you pray for each of your children by name? Do you do that? Wives, are you praying for your husbands as they head out? Praying for them to face temptations, to be faithful, to be granted success? Are you praying for them to know Christ and to be able to lead? Do you pray for your siblings, even for your adult siblings? And, and you may be thinking, how can I find time for that? I don't know. But we're supposed to do it. How can we spend the time in the Word that we should? I don't know. The easiest answer is we've got to get rid of some things and give God time in these things. You see, Paul knew well the trials of life and ministry. So he prayed, knowing that others like Philemon would also be tempted and they would be struggling. You know you have trials. And you're barely surviving at times. You know what you have been tempted to do. And in some situations you have done. Do you know that there is no temptation that has seized you. That is not common to mankind. That means that whatever struggle or temptation. Great or small. Dark or difficult. Humiliating discouraging. Many in this very room have gone through or are even going through the same things. Brian needs prayer. Greg, Leanne need prayer. Kent needs prayer. Nathaniel needs prayer. Ramya needs prayer. Ethan needs prayer. Brad and Phil and I definitely need prayer as we try to, to serve here. As well as our deacons as well as you soldiers who are going out there for the sake of Christ. Yet we don't pray. Do we really believe what we think we believe? That this is a spiritual war. And we must put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. So that when the day of evil comes, we will be able to stand our ground. And after we have done everything to stand, we must be in prayer. I uh, replaced the outline with the church prayer list out there on the little table as you go out. And I, I know that some of you do. Praise God for that. Praise God for what He's doing through you. But I encourage everyone to take one of those lists. There's 70 some of them there. Start praying for each other by name. You would not believe. Yeah, you probably would. But it would be heartbreaking if you knew how much we need prayer because of the difficulties and the hardships or the opportunities that lay before us. We need spiritual strength that comes as God answers prayers of the saints for each other. Then in verse 5, 
Paul says, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. You see, Paul has heard of Philemon's love for the saints and the demonstration of his faith in God. And this is what they call sometimes a chiasm where the first part relates to the last part of the phrase where he's talking about love for God, excuse me, love for the saints and faith for God. And I don't want to confuse this any more than that, although you would know that they don't have faith in the, the saints. So the faith there is to be in God and the love is towards the saints. And that's what Paul is talking about. This thrills Paul. It is one thing when someone personally says, I am growing in the Lord and really trying to serve others. But it is a night and day difference when you begin to hear reports and rumors from others of how so and so has such a vibrant love for Christ. And that person is serving the Lord and people in this way and that way and they've served me and encouraged me in this. You see, Philemon Philemon isn't writing Paul and telling him this. This news is coming from those who have seen Philemon in action. They have been recipients of his loving ministry. And they can verify that Philemon is truly a man of God. As Proverbs 27 verse 2 says, Let another man praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. You see, Paul gave this same kind of praise to a group of believers in Rome. And to them he wrote, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. May we be that kind of a church. Because not for praise to us, but for praise for our Savior. May we be effective. And, and that's where Paul comes in on this next verse 6. Now he shares his prayer request for Philemon's life in verse 6. He says that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Now you read that through a couple of times and you'll get confused I think. And if you look at different translations, you're going to see a different take in some ways in most of them trying to grapple with this. It is considered the most difficult verse in the book of Philemon. It's been a challenge for me, but for also for commentators with much more experience and training than me. In fact, I listened this week to a very faithful and effective preacher, one of my favorites, confess that in his, during, he confessed in his most recent sermon on Philemon, that when he had first preached this passage several years ago, he had quickly worked through it and determined that it was about sharing your faith in evangelism. And he thought, every church needs to share the gospel, so I'm going to use this verse to encourage the people to evangelize. And so that's what he did as he preached. And the next day, on Monday, he received a note from a church member explaining three things. He had missed the point of the passages. He had misinterpreted verse 6 and he had left the congregation in total confusion now as he said that's not the kind of note that really encourages you to head out into the week but that's what he got and he said the worst part about it was as he studied it he realized the guy was completely right he had missed it and what happened is he went on to discover that this is considered the most difficult passage in Philemon as I mentioned And if he had only taken time to discover that earlier, he would likely have taken even more time to study it out. So with that set up, here's my attempt. We have these words. 
the word sharing or fellowship. And now this is not evangelism, although it does certainly include that. This fellowship or sharing is a much more comprehensive word. It is a Greek word koinonia. It means to partnership or participation or communication. As ESV says, it is the fellowship that results from the common faith and common life that believers have in Christ. Koinonia can also at times mean a literal contribution or collection. In Romans chapter 15 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we have Paul collecting offerings or koinonia from several churches to supply for the needs of the impoverished, struggling church in Jerusalem. In this case, koinonia was a very tangible thing. It does not simply mean to enjoy each other's company. It does mean to belong to each other, that we belong to each other. Such life fellowship is not theoretical, it is not simply well-wishing, but it is costly. How is it costly? True Christ fellowship will cost you time. Sometimes much time. It will be emotionally draining. It will crowd your personal space. It may damage your reputation. It may require even finances. And probably other things that we value. That may be the cost of this fellowship that we're talking about. But it goes on to say that it would be effective. And that's the kind of fellowship we want, an effective fellowship. The sharing of life through faith in Christ is to become energes, effective. It's where we get the word energy. It means powerful, effective. Our life together should be the opposite of stagnant, dull, sluggish, or dead. It should be vibrant. From such dynamic, real fellowship, we can experience every good thing that Christ has given us for His glory. That's where this verse is going. Philemon's vibrant fellowship of faith and love was seen, it was heard, it was felt, it was tangible. You knew it was there. He was with people, he was serving people, he was encouraging, he was giving himself for the ministry of Christ. Paul asked God that Philemon's deep fellowship ministry would not only bless the believers around him, but that would give him, Philemon, a deeper awareness and experience of the blessings that Christ has for him. Many of you know this well. When you serve Christ and others, the benefit you provide others is not even close, oftentimes, to the blessing you receive in your relationship with Christ. And then finally, we end with the results from Philemon's life. The results from Philemon's life. Verse 7 says, For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Paul continues to describe the wonderful impact of Philemon's love and faith. It brings him great joy. It comforts him. But it is also doing something very special for God's people. The hearts of these saints, it says, have been refreshed. Or as the King James Version reads, the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. We don't use that word very often. It seems a little bit awkward, in fact. Paul intentionally, however, uses that word. And it's the Greek word splanknon. 
It means to convey a very deep-seated emotion. It literally does mean intestine. And it's also translated as bowels, tender mercies, inward affections, or the heart. It's used only 11 times in the New Testament. The more commonly used word for heart is cardia. And it's used 160 times. But Paul did not use that here. And I think it's because that seems to have more of a sense of emotion of the mind. While Splanklin is a gut level deep emotion. Beale describes it this way. Paul intentionally chose Splanklin over cardia. The bowels carries much more emotional freight than the heart. So what has Philemon's ministry of fellowship done to this deep gut passion in the saints? It says it has refreshed them. And this is a military term. That word means to a military band or platoon that has been marching and has finally come to rest. They have stopped and they are resting in repose. Somehow Philemon's life has allowed the saints of God to catch their breath, to get their strength back, to be energized. Some of you do that for each other. May God use us in that way. I'd like to conclude and say, first of all, I would encourage us to pray by name. Take the prayer list and use it and incorporate it with others that you are led to pray for. Secondly, I would challenge us to pursue fellowship with a whole heart. Give your time and money and resources to serve each other and serve with each other. Be creative. It won't look the same for everyone. And please don't compare. It's like Paul and his wife, they fixed the most amazing home-cooked meals from scratch when they had us over. But Philemon, he orders carry-out pizza and a two-liter of Coke. Don't compare. Some people do things in different ways. Where is the heart? Where is the love? You need to make yourself available. I, you know, I'll, I'll just say there was a, even early this week, there was a situation that, was, that needed help. And, and two dear saints in this church were there right away. Another was on the phone. It's been exciting to see brothers and sisters here respond. And there were probably two or three other things going on this week that I didn't even know about as you helped each other out. But those are the kind of things that build that gut level refreshment that we can enjoy from each other. It is the kind of thing that brings glory to Christ in how we love each other. Be available. Pay the cost to build fellowship for the glory of Christ. And then thirdly, I, I would just say, when the ministry within a church and by an individual is exhorted or challenged, if you're like me, we can have a tendency to evaluate all that the church or others are not doing or how they are doing it or should be doing it differently or better. I'll ask you this question. Do you think that's how Philemon approached ministry? I think it came from this attitude from Philippians chapter 2. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out, excuse me, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this very unique 
letter that you wrote through Paul to the man Philemon on behalf of the slave Onesimus. Lord, please open our minds and hearts to see what you will say to us next week and help us to digest what your word has presented to us and your spirit has said this morning. Lord, use us. Thank you for this church. I thank you for the many ways many people are like this Philemon. Father, we want you to receive even greater glory for those of us who have held back or have been self-focused or or doubted whether we could or whatever the reasons might be, laziness, uh, wrong priorities. Please move us, Father, to bring glory to your name through our lives. Help us, Father. Our schedules sometimes are packed. There are children to take care of and to feed and to teach. There are jobs with much responsibility. But Father, please help us to grapple and grasp and succeed in those things. And that Christ would be exalted as we minister there and we minister to each other in this body. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you displayed this heart when you came from heaven, poured out your life for us, that by faith in you we would have eternal life. You are worthy, O Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.